Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them. By the Lord their God, I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name, Not My People. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. There's nothing more joyful uh, than the birth of a child, unless you're Hosea. And usually, choosing a name for a child uh, is a moment of pride for a parent, unless you are Hosea. When parents choose a name for a child, they usually have positive reasons for picking that name. Maybe it's the name of a beloved grandparent or other ancestor or a favorite historical figure. Or maybe they choose the name because they like the sound of it. Children's names are usually chosen because they communicate something positive unless you are Hosea. Last time we discussed uh, this, this first chapter, we, uh, we discussed the instructions God gave to Hosea, especially in verse 2 there, to take himself a wife of whoredom. And he's making the point, a living illustration, that Israel had forsaken the Lord, had committed spiritual adultery. We focused on Hosea's marriage. It was a picture of God's relationship with specifically those northern ten tribes after the kingdoms had been divided, the kingdom of Israel as opposed to the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel was unfaithful to the Lord with whom they were supposed to be in a covenant relationship, which marriage is a picture of a covenant relationship. They had committed spiritual adultery mainly by pursuing false gods such as Baal. They did this at the same time that they were carrying on the worship that was going on in the temple. But that worship had become just a mere formality. They'd become apathetic about God. 
the true God, Yahweh, their God. And they were merely going through the motions. And that's why the Lord will tell them in chapter 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. He wanted to have a real relationship with these people. And they were just going through the motions and worshiping other gods on top of that. But they were also unfaithful to the Lord by relying on political strategy and military strength for security instead of on the Lord. Now they were doing well economically apparently. They were doing so well that they could eat and drink and be merry without a care in the world. And it is a truth that in times of flourishing, material flourishing, people are tempted to forget God. And that's exactly what happened with Israel. They forgot that it was God that made them prosper. And this is how Israel was being unfaithful to the Lord. Now Hosea's message to Israel was one that he preached over a long period of time. At least in the space of time we see here to have three children, probably about three years in between each child. So what we're just looking at today, these three children, something about ten years that Hosea is giving them these three little bundles of judgment, little warnings in the form of children and their names. And so... Even though Hosea's message is, is so extreme, so shocking, so provocative, still it fell on deaf ears. We know that the northern kingdom fell in a short time after because they did not heed these gracious warnings that God sends them through his prophet. Look, God cares enough to send them this extreme message. Hosea, I want you to marry a woman who's going to become a prostitute. And then I want you to have three children and give them crazy names so that every time you go out with them and you tell them their names, people are going to go, what in the world did you name your child that for? And he's going to explain it to them. But they're going to ignore it. This wake-up call was ignored and Israel fell. Now, this wake-up call is extended to us today and we would do well to heed the warnings has our Christianity become a mere formality? Are we self-satisfied and self-reliant? Have we grown apathetic or lukewarm towards the Lord? Well, Hosea's message is very similar to the message that Jesus sent to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That warning went out to Laodicea. That same warning went out to Israel in Hosea's day. And the warning goes out to us as well today. Well, let us look now at these children. Now, verse 2 uh, was not enough to shock us out of our apathy and sin. Today we turn the spotlight onto these three strangely named children who are signs and symbols of judgment on Israel. They are warnings from the Lord to which we would do well to heed. Well, first, Jezreel. And this was going to take a little more time than the other two, so don't get nervous if I'm taking, uh, if we get to the end and I haven't covered everything. Uh, maybe I'll cut it off if I get hungry enough. Huh? So the first child is called 
Jezreel. And he goes on to say, in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. A lot of names there. Let's unpack that. Okay, he names his son Jezreel. Now that doesn't seem uh, any more strange than the many other biblical names that uh, we hear. Any more strange than Jeroboam or Jehoshaphat. Jezreel sounds like one of those. But a little background check is required on this name. Jezreel, as the text tells us, is a valley. It's a town as well, but the town is just on the edge of the valley. Uh, In the New Testament, it would be the area just south of Galilee that separated Galilee from, from Samaria, southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Now what makes it a strange name for a child is the event, one of the events that took place there. A great massacre carried out by Jehu. Now Jehu was, uh, became a king and he was an agent of God. God called him to, be a, uh, to carry out justice on the house of Ahab. You know Ahab and Jezebel were the wicked king and queen of Israel. So God called Jehu to go and take vengeance on the house of Ahab. Jehu assassinated Ahab's son, Joram, who was the king at the time. Then he had Ahab's wife, Jezebel, thrown off a balcony, after which she was trampled by horses and eaten by dogs. Then he had the 70 descendants of Ahab slaughtered and their heads piled up outside the city gates. And then he executed 42 sons of Judah's king, who was an ally of Israel's king, Joram. And then he had all the followers of Baal executed. It was a bloodbath that Jehu executed in that day. Now why is God saying, I'm going to... I'm going to uh, take revenge or avenge what Jehu did there if God was the one that had called him to be that agent of justice. Well, if we look at Jehu's reign, we see that he was a hypocrite. He punished the evil deeds of others, like Jezebel and Ahab's descendants and the prophets of Baal or all the followers of Baal in that day. But then he turned around and he committed the same acts as those people. He did not stop worshiping idols. And as it tells us in 2 Kings 10, he was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. He, like Israel of Hosea's day, was unfaithful to the Lord. He had forsaken the Lord. So yes, Jezreel, this name for a son, because of its association with this massacre, is a strange name for a child. A name associated with bloodshed of the most heinous nature. It would be like naming a child Columbine or Auschwitz. Place names that only now conjure up memories of tragic events that occurred there. If you named a child Auschwitz, you would have some explaining to do. And that's exactly what God has told Hosea to do. Name this child Jezreel. And every time the child is introduced, you will have to explain it. 
Every time Hosea explains this name, he would be warning the people of Israel that God was threatening to put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel and to break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. See, Israel was relying on its military strength and its prosperity. They were self-satisfied and they didn't care about the Lord anymore. And God sending this warning, which Israel does not heed. They were too secure. John Calvin says the Israelites thought that they should not be exposed to the destruction which Hosea had predicted. For they were dazzled with their own power and thought themselves beyond the reach of any danger while they were so well fortified on every side. Hence the prophet says that all their fortresses would be nothing against God. For in that day, when the ripe time for vengeance shall come, the Lord will break all their bows. He will tear in pieces all their arms and reduce to nothing their power. And that's exactly what happened in 733 B.C., shortly after uh, Hosea's ministry. The Assyrian army fought its way into this valley and began its conquest of the northern kingdom, systematically sending these defenseless Israelites off to Assyria into exile. And just a short time after that, the whole kingdom came to an end in 722. Calvin goes on and says, We are here warned ever to take heed lest anything should lead us to a torpid state when God threatens us, to be apathetic, to not care, when God sends a warning to us. Though we may have strength, though fortune, so to speak, may smile on us, though in a word the whole world should combine to secure our safety, yet there is no reason why we should felicitate ourselves when God declares himself opposed to and angry with us. Why so? Because as he can preserve us when unarmed, whenever he pleases, so he can spoil us of all our arms and reduce our power to nothing. Let this verse then come to our minds whenever God terrifies us by his threatening. And what it teaches us is that he can take away all the defenses in which we vainly trust. These verses should scare us if we are living in, especially if we're living in unrepentant sin, especially secret sin that no one knows about. God graciously gives us time. He does not expose us. He gives us time to repent, but he will eventually expose us. God sent Hosea so the people would repent, but they did not, and he eventually took away everything upon which they were depending. Peter warns the same way in 2 Peter. This is, how, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them, I'm stirring, you, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Wow, he's talking about Hosea. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, the people were saying, he's not coming. They, they've grown apathetic. They've forgotten the Lord and ready to toss him to the side. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, God is patient. He's not exposed you now. He wants you to repent, to heed the warnings, and turn to him. But if not, as he goes on to say, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. That's what's coming. Now, there are reasons to believe that the next two children were not actually Hosea's children but the product of Gomer's adultery. If Jezreel is a strange name, they conjured up gruesome images for the people of Israel. No mercy, the second child, is even stranger. Verse 6 through 7 tells us that Gomer has a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by horses or by horsemen. Pilgrims in colonial America were fond of giving their children uh, names of, of Christian characteristics. Faith, hope, love, patience, charity, temperance. You read all the, People don't use those names as much anymore. But those were names that uh, we read about in history books or stories from the 1700s, 1600s in America. Well, this second child is no mercy. That's weird. Could you imagine naming a child hate or no mercy? A negative characteristic. This is a few years, of course, after Jezreel is born. No mercy shows up on the scene. And it shows a decline in Israel. God has sent this warning through Hosea, uh, this child named Jezreel, and is warning them that they're, they're not going to be secure forever. He's going to break the bow of Israel and take away their strength and all that they're relying upon. And so they heed not the warning, so God sends no mercy. He says, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. Well, God is showing that his constant forbearance that he has exercised toward his people has been abused. You know, he, is, he, he says it. You see it the way he says it. I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. Saying, implying, up to this point, I have been gracious and merciful time and time again Though they continue to turn from me, they continue to forsake me. So I will no more have mercy on Israel. They have abused my mercy enough. And he is warning them that if they do not repent, they will hit rock bottom. He even throws the example of Judah at them in verse 7. I will show mercy to Judah, uh, but I'm not going to save them with military might. I'm not going to save them with horses or chariots or anything like that. 
It's going to be by the Lord their God. And sure enough, that's what happened. Assyria comes and is on the doorstep of Judah, ready to attack. And the Lord sends a message. And he says in 2 Kings 19, Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, Jerusalem, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast a besieged mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. So God did exactly what he was going to say he did. He saved Judah, not by military might, but the angel of the Lord came down and saved them and drove the Assyrians away. So Hosea, having this child, no mercy, and saying what he does about Judah, is, it's kind of like when a parent uh, says to you, you know, you've been disobedient as a child. You remember when you were little children, and why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> you know, <laughs> your brother's not misbehaving. He's not acting up. He's saying, look, Look at Judah. They're going to be saved. You're not. They're trusting in the Lord. And the Lord is going to save them, not with their military strength. They're not trusting in their military strength. They're not resting secure in all that they can provide. They're trusting in me, and I will save them. But you are not going to receive mercy because you're not trusting in me. It's a good warning to us. God is patient with us, as, he, as Peter said calling us to repentance. But we can forfeit that mercy. And even when God comes and as he's going to do to Israel and drives them out, uh, it, it is gracious and merciful. We'll see it in a moment. By exposing them and hitting them where it hurts, he's helping them to get to rock bottom so that they will look back to him. But let's first look at this third child very briefly. Because this is just depressing. To have this message come. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. So we're talking a few years later. Still they have not repented. Still they have not turned back to the Lord. And so have a child. She bore a son. And you will call his name, not my people. And that's a, that's a pretty strange name. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Having a child. This is my son, not my son. And, and you know what he's saying, actually, there. This is an illegitimate child. And that's what he's saying about Israel. Very harsh. Very, very harsh. And what's even more harsh is the next thing that he says. You are not my people, and I am not your God. You don't ever want God to say that to you. The, the message here is dire. The message here is dark. God is divorcing them. He is disowning them and disinheriting them. And it's a lesson to us. If we're living in hypocrisy, but we're enjoying prosperity, it's easy for us to be apathetic like the people that Peter was talking about. He's not going to do anything. 
We're getting away with all this. But they ought, those people who live that way, us if we're that way, we should remember that God will bring judgment. We need to not abuse the favor that we have at the moment, but turn to the Lord. What's going on here is exactly what they agreed to back in Moses' day when he first initiated this covenant relationship. God, in essence, predicted this. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Here's what he says. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, which is what Israel has done, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. That word scattering, the word Jezreel means God sows or God scatters. That's what the valley means, the valley of Jezreel means. And that's the same language that's used there. And Jezreel also means that. And I'm going to scatter you. He's going to come back later and say, I'm going to, I'm going to Jezreel you into the land. I'm going to replant you there. I'm going to sow you there. That's good news for a moment. Let me read this, continue on. I will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. That's good news. Yes, God is going to drive them out of the land because they are unrepentant. But it's going to wake them up. It's just a, a question of how much does God have to do to wake you up, to make you heed the warnings? Because he will not forget his covenant with his people. Even though he says, you're not my people, and I am not your God. He's sending that message to wake them up. Now, if we think about our lives today and where we are today, we have greater grace and we have more revealed to us because of what Christ has done. We have a God who has sent his son into the world and has died for us. That's how much he loves us. And we should never be apathetic about that or just be merely formal and go through the motions in our worship. This whole scenario reminds me of the story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, the, the, the rich man uh, had it all easy in his lifetime and Lazarus was, was a poor man who begged outside of his door. Well, when they both died, Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham to, to heaven and the, 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 uh, the rich man goes to hell. And he cries out, uh, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and come and 
cool my tongue with it. And he says, you can't, we can't cross this chasm. We can't do that. And here's the words of the rich man. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And that's a word for us today, to hear Hosea the prophet. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Someone has risen from the dead. And he is going to return. And he's going to come and judge the living and the dead, as we say in the confession of faith. That's a warning. It's a promise and a warning. Are we ready for his return? Do we love the Lord? Do we have sincere love for him? If we're struggling today, if we've fallen into sin, run to Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that today. Turn to, turn to the Lord because he is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the relationship that he has with you. He is not moved, and he, was, he is ready to welcome you back like the prodigal son's father runs out to you and welcomes you back home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you always for it. Lord, we so often hear these warnings from Scripture, and often they bounce off our heads. They go in one ear and out the other. Lord, we have grown cold in our love towards you and apathetic in our service to you, satisfied with the sinful patterns in our lives. Lord, we pray today that each one of us would heed these warnings and not have to endure having your mercy and grace pulled back away from us. But Lord, whatever it takes, we pray that you would stir us up to look to you and to know your mercy and grace and to be convinced of the importance of it. Help us, Lord, not to be lukewarm anymore. Revive us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.